Today on the Matt Walsh Show, a heartbreaking clip goes viral showing the total devastation that gender ideology wreaks on families. Also, DeSantis finally directly responds to Trump's attacks, though his response is not nearly as dramatic as the media is making it out to be. Joe Biden tries to read poetry, and it goes as well as you'd expect. The governor of Arizona focuses on the real issues by outlawing, quote, hair discrimination. Media Matters comes up with their latest attack on the Daily Wire. This time, they're mad that we don't like to do laundry. In our daily cancellation, it it comes to this finally. I must cancel my Daily Wire colleague, Michael Knowles. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, spring is just around the corner, and the last thing you need is those pesky sunspots on your skin when you're outside soaking up the sun. For the first time ever, our friends at GenuCell are including both the Ultra Retinol and Dark Spot Corrector in their most popular package at GenuCell.com Walsh. GenuCell's Ultra Retinol package uh, contains a powerful retinol alternative that is safe for your skin. Their Dark Spot Corrector will help you uh, help with all those sunspots. Plus, you'll still get GenuCell's world-class under-eye bags therapy for that annoying under-eye bags and puffiness. With GenuCell's immediate effects, you'll see results in 12 hours guaranteed or your money back. You know, my show's director, Mark Jones, uses, we just keep going through people who work on the show, uses GenuCell's ultra retinal treatment after directing my show daily. This uh, gentle wrinkle treatment helps soothe and smooth any lines I may or may not cause with all the havoc I wreak on the control room. So we're supposed to imagine now, uh, you know, the crew in the control room just lathering up with lotion after every show. It's a, kind of a bizarre image, but don't worry about that. Don't wait. Visit GenuCell.com Walsh to save over 70% off their most popular package. Plus, every order subscription includes a luxury gift box with two free springtime essentials just in time for spring. You'll get free shipping plus a luxury box containing two free gifts with every subscription. Go to GenuCell.com Walsh, GenuCell.com Walsh. One of the most important websites in existence right now is a substack called Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans, or PIT. Uh, it's a forum where parents who have felt the devastation of gender ideology up close and personal can discuss their experiences. It does not make for fun reading, I can tell you. In fact, it's some of the most, uh, some of the most heart-wrenching, some of the saddest material you're likely to ever come across. But it's also some of the most important. So this week, the lead story on Pitt is an article written by an anonymous father with the title, A Father's Anger That Will Not Sleep. And here's what he writes in part. Quote, it's been two years since my 19-year-old son walked into a Planned Parenthood and received HRT drugs on informed consent. His mother and I pleaded with him to not make such a life-changing decision at such a young age, but he would not listen to reason and receive these drugs without, without any psychological evaluation or supervision and little medical supervision. Since that time, I have experienced bouts of intense anger, which have caused my mental health to decline. It's an anger that woke me up at 2 a.m. for nearly a year and still regularly wakes me up at 4 a.m. It has taken a toll on my mind, my body, and mood. I experience depression and anhedonia more often than not. I find little to no joy in hobbies I once relished. I take care of the tasks of daily living and not much else. I honestly did not think it was possible to feel such emotional pain. Now, here we see all the painfully familiar themes. A young person sucked into the gender cult, enabled to make self-destructive, life-altering decisions, while the parents frantically scramble to pull them back from the brink. But over time, they begin to feel that that the, the fight is hopeless because all of the cultural forces are arrayed against them in this fight. The father continues, quote, 
I am aging and hope for the compensation of feeling I had a life well-led and that I successfully launched my children into the world. But my son has stolen that from me and left me feeling like an utter failure. This was a child that I treated with love, compassion, and generosity, and he has selfishly taken all of that away. I am aware of how this anger is harming my mind and body. What am I trying to do about it? For the better part of a year, I pleaded with my son to stop. His response was to call his mother and I transphobic. Every day for the past two years, I have restrained myself from sending my son a nasty email telling him what I really think about his narcissistic behavior and misogynistic fantasy. Some days I successfully pretend none of this is happening. I enjoy those few moments of morning amnesia where I can't yet recall my current circumstances. I saw a therapist for about a year and a half, but it wasn't helpful. Part of me always saw the therapist as part of the profession enabling this social contagion. I also couldn't trust him with my true feelings as I feared judgment. Several times a week, I have a crying jag that lasts several minutes. I do it when my wife is out walking the dog so as to not burden her with this. If I didn't love my son, all of this would be much easier. But I do. And it is my love that causes the grief that feeds my anger. Now, he also notes that he will never vote Democrat again, which is another common theme in uh, many of these stories. This is the side of gender ideology that is rarely acknowledged, uh, almost never discussed. Transgenderism leaves nothing but destruction in its wake, and it's not just the individual gender-confused person who is irreparably harmed by it. They are, but it's also everyone around that person, everyone who loves him. This week, we've seen this dramatically illustrated in a viral clip from the Dr. Phil show. Now, this clip is from an episode that first aired several years ago, but it started making the rounds uh, on Twitter just recently. It's now been viewed nearly 10 million times, and in the clip, a trans-identified male reveals his uh, female persona to the man who cared for him since he was a baby. Now, that man is actually his biological uncle, but took on the role of the boy's father when he was a newborn and has raised him as a son ever since. So he is the father. And now this father is seeing his son in his woman face costume for the first time, and he is devastated by it. Watch. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Tell me what you're thinking and feeling right now, Gary. I'm hurt bad. Really bad. What do you what do you have to say? Why? I just I just want you to know that you didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. He feels like he, he let you down. He's gone back to the point of he says one time for Halloween. Yeah. Uh, talk about that. He dressed up like a girl. I thought it was funny at first. No, I certainly don't. I thought it was Halloween, you know? So I just went along with it. Actually pinched him on his behind and said he made a good looking girl, but I was only joking. He's not a good looking girl. 
He's a very beautiful man. One of the most gut-wrenching videos you'll ever see, made all the more tragic by the trained seals in the audience applauding and cheering the very thing that has broken this man's heart. Now, I don't know how this moment ended up on TV or why the man, Gary, agreed to go through with this on camera or if he even knew what he was getting into, which I doubt, but whatever the case, there is much to be learned here. And we can learn first from the entirely predictable reaction from trans activists who have responded to this clip by, of course, deriding and mocking the father. Um, because these are soulless, heartless ghouls who just think that his misery is funny. Now, of course, most of these people have done the same thing to their own families, and so when they attack the father, they're really rationalizing their own behavior. This is the case, whatever a trans activist says, I mean, whatever the trans activist says about anything, they're always really talking about themselves because all they care about is themselves. Gender ideology is narcissism through and through. It is narcissism distilled down to its purest form. It is narcissism elevated to a way of life. And the narcissist doesn't worry about how, how his decisions impact anyone else. He sees the devastation and heartbreak of a loving father and feels nothing. Nothing except anger at the father for daring to have feelings and priorities of his own. Gender ideology teaches the trans-identified individual that the entire world exists simply to affirm him and to prop up and support his self-perception, however deluded it may be. And since the entire world exists for this purpose, so too does his own family. And the job of each of his family members, as he sees it, starting especially with his parents, is to be a soulless, faceless automaton programmed to accept whatever he does and believe whatever he says and affirm every fantasy he has in his head. He demands that his deepest desires be affirmed and his individual expression be respected, but he doesn't care at all about the desires, hopes, dreams, perceptions of the very people he is making this demand of. He doesn't care about that. I mean, they have feelings too, but that never comes into, that never makes it into the equation, does it? This is what the gender ideologue believes. It's what their religion preaches. It's what's one of their central creeds. Gender ideology's most public proponents are very clear about this. You know, they tell young people that if your parents offer the slightest resistance to your desire to, quote, transition, then your parents are the enemy. Your parents are trying to get you killed and you should cut them out of your life completely. Jeffrey Marsh, creepy uh, groomer, social media influencer, is infamous for telling kids to go, quote, no, no contact or non-contact with their parents, meaning cut them out of your life. But don't worry, Marsh says, because if you disown your parents, you can always replace them with Jeffrey Marsh. Your parents screwed up. It's okay to say so. <laughs> That's why I made a Patreon, so that we could talk about it so that we could connect in a way that has more privacy, so that we could talk to each other in a way that's a, uh, more open and stuff that we wouldn't share like in the comments of a video like this. I think you're worthy and valuable. And I wanted to spend more connected time with you, healing together and hearing your deeply inspiring stories. Yes, he wants to connect with you. For the low price of a Patreon subscription, Jeffrey Marsh will be your new father figure or mother figure or whatever the hell he's trying to be. Forget about the people who conceived you and birthed you and raised you from diapers and 
gave you everything, gave you their lives, gave you their hearts. Forget them. I mean, they obviously hate you if they won't immediately and without question accept that you are a sex other than the one on your birth certificate. Jeffrey Marsh has your real interests at heart. Pay him some money and come talk to him privately online and he'll tell you all about it. This is why we need to call more attention to the callous, narcissistic disregard that the gender ideologue has for his own loved ones. This is, as I said, a central feature of the ideology. There's a reason why so many of uh, transgenderism's most prominent mascots are you know, grown men who, quote, transitioned later in life and intentionally destroyed their marriages and families in the process. Take Rachel Levine, for example, 65 years old today. That means he, de- he decided to, quote, come out as a woman in 2011, which means that he was in his early 50s you know, when he made that decision. He had a wife who he'd been married to for years. He had two kids. Putting everything else aside, just think about how unfathomably selfish you have to be, how uncaring and heartless to tell your wife that her husband is gone and now she has to get used to being married to a woman. And guess what? You're in a lesbian relationship now, whether you like it or not. And to tell your children that their father is gone. They no longer have a father. Their father is dead. And now they must simply accept that they have two moms. Consider how disastrously self-absorbed you must be to put this weight, this burden on your family, on those who depend on you. But what is Levine supposed to do? Is he supposed to suppress his deepest desires and live as a man, even if he doesn't feel like one? Even if it makes him uncomfortable? Yes, of course that's what he's supposed to do. Of course. Now, this may come as a shock to the left. I know it comes as a shock to them. But there are more important things in your life than your desires, especially desires that are so deeply disordered. Your responsibility to your family is one of those things. And now we get to the part that very few people ever say out loud. Um, And I I have, as you know, many arguments against gender ideology. I've articulated all of them many times. But here's another point in addition to those that needs to be acknowledged. You know, as we know, you cannot be any sex other than the one you were born as. Any attempt to transition is ultimately doomed to failure. Uh, It fails before it even begins. But also, not only do you have no choice but to be the sex that you are, you also have the responsibility to accept that fact and live accordingly. Okay, a man has the responsibility to live as a man and act as a man and a woman as a woman. You have a responsibility, in other words, to live in reality. We are not atomized individuals living in our own universes, divorced from the next person's uh, reality. We, We have lives that are intertwined with each other. We, in fact, do live in a society, it turns out. We also live in families, and and our lives are more intertwined the closer we are tied to each other, whether by blood or by marriage. What this means is that when you decide to totally reject the non-negotiable realities of the world, and even to reject your own physical nature, you are not making a neutral decision that affects no one but yourself. You are tied to other people, whether you like it or not, and you are pulling them with you into this dark, twisted, alternate universe that you have constructed. You are imposing it on them. That man in the clip is a father. That is a bond that will forever tie him to his son and forever define both of them. 
when the son decides to be a woman, quote unquote, he is doing that to his father. He's not just radically changing his own life. He is radically changing his father's life and demanding that his father be okay with it. This is my life, he might say. But it's not just his life. There are many other lives bound up with his life, and he is seeking to fundamentally alter all of them. Now, if you were some, uh, some sort of uh, immortal being that materialized out of the ether and was passively you know, floating in space somewhere out near the asteroid belt, that it might be true that your decisions and lifestyle choices don't affect anyone else. Okay, if you're just floating out in space and you and you materialized out there, then yes, then you can rightly say, well, what I do has no effect on anybody else. So what is it to you? But if you're a human being born to human parents, raised in a family and living in a community, then nearly everything you do has an impact on others. And that impact is felt more profoundly the closer someone is to you. For the guy in that Dr. Phil segment, his refusal to live as the person that he is, his denial of reality, his rejection of his basic responsibility as a man, starting with the responsibility to be a man and act as a man and accept the fact that he is a man, becomes now a giant cross that everyone who loves him must carry. He has exploded all of their lives so that he can live as he wishes. Now, he may be a victim in his own right, a victim of brainwashing, a victim of the lies that he has come to believe, but now he makes victims of his family, of the people who love him the most. And nothing will ever make that okay. Now let's get to our five headlines. Biden's plans to help struggling business owners in the wake of COVID lockdowns were to prioritize Black, Latino, Native American, and women-owned businesses. It goes without saying that if the roles were reversed, if Biden had said his plans were to prioritize white male-owned businesses, well, there would be uh, outrage, to say the least. If you own a business, you can't rely on the government to bail you out. You need to take matters into your own hands. And innovation refunds can help you do just that, no matter what demographic group you belong to. If your business has five or more employees and managed to survive COVID, you could be eligible to receive a payroll tax rebate of up to $26,000 per employee through the employee retention credit. Just go to getrefunds.com. Innovation Refunds has already helped clients claim over $3 billion in payroll tax refunds through the ERC, and they may be able to help your business too. This is not a loan. There's no payback. It's a refund of your tax, as simple as that. There's no upfront charge either. They don't get paid until your business gets its refund. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. See if your business qualifies for ERC assistance in just eight minutes. Go to getrefunds.com, click on qualify me and answer a few questions. This payroll tax refund is only available for a limited amount of time, so don't miss out. Go to getrefunds.com, getrefunds.com. So we're going to begin here just because, uh, well, it's great. Yesterday, Joe Biden attempted to read a poem off of the teleprompter, and uh, it went as well as you might anticipate. Here it is. Richard Blanco uh, returned to a poem he wrote from the second inaugural of Barack and Me. A poem, one today, it says, And always one moon, like a silent drum, tapping at every rooftop and every window on every, in, of every county, country. I'm, let me start this over again. <laughs> I'm getting so intimidated by being here. <laughs> And always one moon, 
like a silent drum tapping on every rooftop and every window of one country, county, county, all of us facing the stars. Hope, a new constellation waiting for us to map it, waiting for us to name it together. Uh, it was country, by the way. He settled on county finally because he can't read. Uh, he can't tell the difference between country and county, but it is country. What, what do you mean? All of us as one county. Why would that be the word? I mean, even if you're going, if you can't read for some reason, uh, going based on context clues, all of us together as one county. Whose idea was this? Who the hell came up with the idea that our dementia in chief should read a poem? Who, who suggested that? I want to be in the meeting when that was suggested. I have to assume it's somebody working for the other side, in which case, well done, sir. Now, this must be some sort of secret agent working, uh, maybe not so secret, because it's really obvious the sabotage. This is sabotage. This is the opposite of playing to your strengths, uh, whatever Biden's strengths are at this point. I mean, his strength is like taking a, a, an afternoon nap. That's his strength. So when he does that, that's when he's really in his element. But um, reading poetry, I mean, that's like... A, that is like if, for some reason, they did roll call here at the Daily Wire every day, where you had to read off the names, and they put me in charge of reading the names, when I can't pronounce any names at all. Like, the name could be John Smith, and I would somehow mispronounce it. Uh, Jan Smythe? It would basically be that Key and Peele skit with the, with the substitute teacher, but in real life, which would actually be hilarious, uh, you know, just like the poetry reading was hilarious, but not hilarious in the way that you want the president of the United States to be. So what are you going to do? Also, by the way, the poem is terrible. I also have to mention um, poems need to rhyme and uh, I, I will die on that hill just like so many other hills that I will die on and I will die on this hill. A poem needs to rhyme. It does not count. Poems don't count. I'm sorry if they don't rhyme. They just don't because anyone can write a poem. If it, the, the, What makes writing poetry difficult is the rhyming part, is to be able to you know, put together, put something together and, and paint the picture in a way where it rhymes and it has rhythm, and but it doesn't sound like you're stretching to make the words rhyme. That's the difficult part. So, you know, maybe this makes me some kind of Philistine. I'm sure I am, but I still believe that poems need to rhyme. So a bad poem that was badly told. Uh from the Daily Wire, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis punched back at former President Donald Trump after enduring months of attacks from the man he appears increasingly likely to challenge for the 2024 presidential, uh, Republican presidential nomination. DeSantis made the remarks in an interview with Piers Morgan on Fox Nation's Piers Morgan Uncensored that is set to air later this week. The remarks from DeSantis come after the pre former president has launched multiple attacks on the governor since the midterm elections ended, including trying to brand the governor with derogatory names, promoting baseless claims that DeSantis is a groomer, and claiming that Democrat, the Democrat billionaire George Soros endorsed DeSantis. Uh, DeSantis has slam, was slammed by the former president on Monday after he spoke out against the prosecution of Trump by the Manhattan District Attorney, uh, and we uh, talked about that. Um, so what did DeSantis say? He said, and there'll be clips of this because they're, they're going to air, like I said, Thursday, they're going to air the interview. But this is some of what he said. He says, um, I have what it takes to be president and I can beat Biden. This is DeSantis now. If I were to run, I'm running against Biden like uh, we, he and Trump, are competing for the Republican nomination potentially. I get that. But ultimately, the guy I'm going to focus on is Biden because I think he's failed the country. I think the country wants a change, he added. I think they want a fresh start in a new direction. And so we'll be very vocal about that. Um, 
When asked about differences between himself and Trump, DeSantis said that there were several. Uh, quote, the approach to COVID was different. I would have fired somebody like Fauci. I think he got away too big for his britches, and I think he did a lot of damage. I also think just in terms of my approach to leadership, I get, I get uh, personnel in the government who have the agenda of the people and share our agenda. You bring your own agenda in, you're gone. We're just not going to have that. So the way we run the government, I think, is no daily drama. Focus on the big picture and put points on the board. I think that's something that's very important. And then DeSantis laughed off Trump's derogatory nickname, saying, I don't know how to spell the sanctimonious one. I don't really know what it means, but I kind of like it. It's long. It's got a lot of vowels. Okay. We'll go with that. That's fine. I mean, you can call me whatever you want, just as long as you also call me a winner, because that's what we've been able to do in Florida. Okay. So that maybe there's more to it, but uh, the media it has been hyping up. I've seen a lot of headlines about DeSantis uh, launches into into Donald Trump. It's, uh, you know, the, the war of words has finally begun. Um, and the vicious attack on Donald Trump. I've heard that from the media. I've also heard from Trump supporters on, on social media responding to this. How dare he? How dare DeSantis? I mean, all Trump has done is, is attack him relentlessly for months. And DeSantis finally responds directly, and it's, I can't believe this, the disloyalty to say anything. No, your responsibility, apparently, as DeSantis, is to just be attacked and never respond because Trump has some sort of God-given right to say whatever he wants to anyone about anyone and never have anyone say anything to him. Um, that is, you know, uh, if you're in the cult of personality, that's what some people think. But the reality, like back in Realityville, right, this was actually pretty tame. Uh, he, like I said, you know, we'll see the, the full interview. Maybe there's more in there. But if that's it, then that's pretty tame. All he's doing, he's asking a question. He's answering a question that was asked of him. Um, what are the differences between you and, you know, what Trump did and what you would do? And so he outlines the differences. And yes, he thinks he'd be a better president. He doesn't even say that, but we can assume he does. I mean, if he runs for president, it means that he thinks he's qualified for the job and be better than the next guy, just like anyone else who runs. So it's not, um, yeah, the media is starving for a full-on war between DeSantis and Trump. And so far, it's been basically one-sided with Trump attacking DeSantis, DeSantis not responding. And now they finally get a response and some criticism. I mean, they're pretty mild criticisms, really, but... Um, they finally get a response, and so they're going to latch on to it and try to, uh, you know, and they're going to wait for the response from Trump, and Trump's going to respond in a way that's, you know, that's uh, far more vicious than what DeSantis said, and that's the way it's going to go back and forth. Um, all I would say for those of us who are conservatives, and uh, if our ultimate goal is for a not-Democrat to be in the White House in 2024, because that is our ultimate goal. Everyone knows I'd like to see DeSantis in there. I think he's proven based on his um, based on his tenure as governor of Florida, he's he's proven that he knows how to enact a conservative agenda. He has the ability, not just the willingness to follow through, but the ability to do it. I know it's it's different when you're doing it on a national scale, but you know he has taken the opportunities that were given to him, and he has proven that he's a capable conservative leader. And so I'd like to see him in there, but. But ultimately, if it's not him, I want someone who's not a Democrat. I want someone who's not Joe Biden at the age of 82 starting a second term. Or if it's not him, then whatever, whoever else, whatever crazy person they put up in his place. So that's my, that's what I want to see. I want to see a, uh, if it can't be DeSantis, I want to see someone who is not a Democrat in the White House. 
And if we all, you know, as any conservatives, if, if we all share that opinion, then we can't get sucked into, can't be manipulated in this way uh, by, by, you know, pretending that like anything DeSantis says in response to Trump is, is automatically this like uh, vicious, unheard of insult, right? Like this kind of drama they're trying to stir up. We can't, we can't allow ourselves to get sucked into that. Instead, we should try to be rational and fair at least. You're going to support whoever you support in the primaries. We should all be rational, fair-minded people. And if you're a rational, fair-minded person, then you hear that and you say, well, it's, like, what else is he going to say? Did you, is he going to be asked that question and say, oh, no, Trump is perfect and would make a perfect president? Is that really what he's required to say? Come on. And what he said is true. Like, it, it is just true that, that Donald Trump handed the, tr- the country over to Dr. Fauci uh, not only didn't fire him, but awarded him, awarded him, gave him an award at the end, the uh, at the end of it all. Okay, awarded him for his efforts rather than firing him. That's what Trump did. And um, I know that's you know some of the some Trump supporters are going to want us to just forget what happened, but it did happen. Now you could question, well, if DeSantis was it's all it's all what it could have shoulda, and it's all hypothetical. If DeSantis was in office. Would he have fired Fauci? He says he would. There's no way to know for sure. I think based on his track record, there's very good reason to think that he would have. And this is what he has done in Florida. He's, he, he, he has not afraid to fire people like this. He's actually gone into the government agencies in Florida and cleaned these people out. All right. Um, State Department spokesperson John Kirby insisted Tuesday that LGBTQ plus rights are a core part of the United States foreign policy. Kirby's remarks came during a White House press briefing following a question about whether it was a concern for the State Department that Russia may be attempting to influence Africa's uh, anti-LGBTQ movement to drive a wedge between it and the U.S. Oh, right. And of course, because you know, in, in, we know in, in Africa, in many of these African nations and cultures, uh, they are not on board with the uh, LGBT agenda. They're not on board with any of it. They're not on board with the, with the trans stuff. I, I encountered that firsthand, as you know, in uh, What is a Woman? They're not on board for it. And so what we hear from, you know, of course, the media says, well, it's because Russia, it's, uh, it's all Russia. Russia is manipulating the African nations to be against uh, the, the LGBT stuff, right? But John Kirby had an answer to that. And uh, here's what he said. I mean, and President Biden has been uh, nothing but consistent uh, about his uh, belief, foundational belief in human rights, and LGBTQ plus rights are human rights. Uh, and uh, we, again, back to the earlier question, are never going to shy away and be bashful about speaking up for those rights and for, uh, uh, for individuals to live as they deem fit, as they want to live. And that's something that's a core part of our foreign policy, and it, and it will remain so. No, LGBT rights are not human rights. Human rights are human rights. Okay, you don't you don't need you don't need to uh, divide it and come up with different labels and categories and subcategories for human rights. Human rights are human rights. Uh, you know, it, 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 human rights are, as it says the Declaration of Independence, are endowed by the Creator. They come as uh, as a consequence of our human nature, and they're the same for everybody. So if you are a gay person, do you have human rights? Well, obviously, everybody does. But do you have special categories of rights? Are there like special additional rights that you have if you're in one of these protected groups? 
No. Um, at least not now. Those rights can be invented by the state as they are. So, for example, you know, if the Democrats, they want to give, and they have in many cases given, trans, you know, trans-identified male the right to go into whatever bathroom he wants. That is not a right that's enjoyed by anybody else or ever was enjoyed by anybody else. So that's a special right, privilege that they want to give to this group. And so when they say LGBT rights, that's what they're talking about. Because if they weren't talking about those special additional rights, then we wouldn't need to say LGBT rights, just say human rights. When they, when they uh, specify in that way, you know that they're just like when they say women's rights. You know, very often they're talking about the right to kill a baby. That's not a human right. That's not a right that is endowed in us by the creator. And that's not a right that's enjoyed by all human beings. Men don't have the right to kill a baby. That is a special privilege, if we can call it that. The satanic privilege that, is, uh, that, that the Democrats want to give to the women and have. So it's the same thing here. These are these are um, these additional rights that are that are granted by government powers. They are not uh, inherent to our human nature. They are not endowed by God. Certainly not. As far as LGBT rights being a core part of our foreign policy, well, this uh, if that's the case, and it is for this administration, that is just to say that the administration's this administration's current foreign policy is their real foreign policy, their real strategy, is to take all of the worst parts of the foreign policy of the past 30 years and then make it even worse. So to embrace all of the worst aspects of the foreign policy, of you know American foreign policy of the last 30 years, and amplify those bad parts. Because it was bad enough when we were uh, gallivanting around the globe trying to export democracy and a, quote, way of life to places that didn't want it and shouldn't have been forced to have it. Well, now we're still doing the same kind of thing, but we're trying to export the most left-wing aspects of this way of life. And these are the aspects that are the most viscerally objectionable to large swaths of the world. Those portions of the world that we're trying the most to impose it on. All right, Fox Phoenix has a, a very important story. I wasn't sure if we'd have time for this, but it is, like I said, it's just uh, really, they're doing important things um, over there in Arizona. So let's, let's watch this. Governor Hobbs signing an executive order this afternoon banning discrimination on the basis of natural hairstyles uh, or texture. This would apply only to state workers and contractors, but the governor says she wants to send a message. Fox 10's Irene Snyder spoke with some stylists about what this means. Irene. Well, good evening, John and Christina. Governor Katie Hobbs signing that executive order today. Tempe and Tucson already passed similar bans. And while, as you mentioned, this is not going to be a statewide protection, the governor saying she hopes, she hopes it will inspire future legislation. This is our hair. To have a freedom of doing like whatever to our hair is very powerful. Hairstylist Kiara Jones says she knows what it's like to be discriminated based on her chosen hairstyles. She's seen it with clients at her Gilbert Salon, too. The times my clients will sit in my chair and they'll be like, OK, so I'm very limited of styles because I'm going to this job and, you know, I'm the only one that looks like me. All right. All right. Governor Katie Hobbs signing an executive order today banning discrimination against state employees and contractors because of natural and protective hairstyles. I'm hopeful that this inspires legislation uh, to end this kind of inequity across the board. 
It's often referred to as the Crown Act, which stands for creating a respectful and open workplace for natural hair. This includes styles often associated with race, like braids, twists, and locks. Well, the style that we're doing on his hair are two-strand twists. The styles is kind of like endless. You can do braids. Um, you can be very creative with braids. Shantae Fox owns a salon in Tempe, specializing in curly textured styles. She says many of her clients in the past have damaged their hair, trying to conform to straight hairstyles using heat and hair relaxers. Right. It can be damaging the to the off. hair follicle. I can't, I, I can't deal with that. I'm not in the mood. I'm never in the mood for this. These damned clowns. Like, everything that's happening in this country, you know, you got a crime wave epidemic, economy is in shambles, everything. And, 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 and this is what they're focused on. You know, we are such a stupid society, and, and can we get stupider? I know we can, so don't answer that question. Protected hairstyles? What? This is what you're worried about, is discrimination against hairstyles. The, and by the way, talking about all the, you know, the, the, the very real epidemics and crises that we face in this, uh, in this country and in the world, like I said yesterday, I think it's... These people, Democrats, would, would add additional uh, crises that I wouldn't even mention. I mean, these are the ones that, that say that we're, the world's about to end because of, because of global warming. They think that. I don't. Do you think the, wor the world is on the brink? We're on the brink of global destruction. And you have time to sign a bill, like, ensuring people can wear braids to work? And where do we get this idea? I mean, this, I know where we got it from this victim mentality, but, you know, so rhetorically, where do we get this idea that, that, that only black people are subject to dress codes involving hair? So if a black person is told, well, this is the hairstyle, you know, these are the kind of hairstyles you can have on this job. Oh my goodness, this is, a, this is oppression. How could you say this to me? I have, everyone has to deal with that. Get over yourself. We all, that's, Jobs that have dress codes, which many do, it applies to everyone, okay? If you went to a job where they said, um, if you're black, there's a dress code. If you're white, there isn't. Now, if you encountered that at a job, then I would agree that that's discrimination. But that is not happening anywhere. That has never, ever happened to you. Never. And it never would. So the most that's happened to you is you've gone to a job where there is a dress code that applies to everyone, but because you are, in keeping with the theme of today, a raging narcissist who's, who's become a, a psycho, your, your victim mentality has driven you psychotic because of that, you assume that this dress code that, it, that, that involves everyone and affects everyone and that everyone has been abiding by for decades with no problem is somehow a personal attack on you individually. I mean, the correct response from society to someone like that is shut the hell up and get over yourself. Like, go cry about it. You're crying because you, you can't, I want to wear braids. So what? Who cares? Just wear the hairstyle they're telling you to wear. That's it. That should be the response. But uh, because we are, again, a very stupid society, instead, we hear people complaining about this and we say, oh, tell me more about it. That must be really hard for you. Oh, you had to, you had, you, oh, you had to change your hairstyle. Like, I can't imagine that. No, no one has ever had to do that before. They are the first one. So desperate for victimhood. So desperate that this is what we are down to. Protected hairstyles. Um, all right. 
We have one more thing here that is uh, also important. Well, not important at all, but I wanted to mention it. The, uh, the latest Media Matters hit job, you know, because apparently we aren't providing them enough fodder just based on what we say every day on all of our shows. Now they're going back and they're combing through, uh, Media Matters is, our entire like catalog of, of old videos. And um, Ariel Drennan, who's a, a male employee at Media Matters, found a video from a bit that all of the hosts filmed a couple of years ago on Valentine's Day. And I forgot that this existed, that we even did this. But um, the basic gist is that our wives were asked questions about us. And then we were asked the same questions. And whoever's answers lined up the best with what the wife said won. And uh, I, don't, I, I, think, I think Drew won this. This, uh, he's been married the longest. It really was not fair. Um, anyway, Drennan and uh, a bunch of leftists who reacted to this clip were especially offended by, uh, and, and by the way, you, they were, I know as soon as they saw that this clip existed, that we did some kind of Valentine's Day, you know, bit fake game show thing involving, you know, talking about our relationships with our wives. As soon as they saw that, they knew that they had hit a jackpot because they knew that they're automatically going to be able to find something offensive. Like it's an impossible, in their twisted worldview, it's impossible for a straight male to say anything about his relationship with his wife that won't automatically be offensive. And so um, they really had their pick of the litter on this one. And uh, this is what they this is what they decided was offensive. Let's watch it. All right, Matt. Uh, it's kind of a trick question because I, I hate them both equally. So, I, But I guess I would say I would rather do the dishes. But I'd prefer if she just did both of the things. Michael, to you. Dishes, it's no question. I'm not sure in our entire marriage if I've ever done a full load of laundry. So I, I think I have that one. I like it. All right, Drew. Well, this is a trick question because I have not done anything around the house for 40 years. I've been a completely useless. But it's, it's clear that if I had to choose, it would be... It would have to be dishes because she was just out of town for a month, and I actually called her up and said, how do you do laundry? <laughs> so I think dishes is the only thing I know how to do. All right, to the answers. Ben, you answered dishes. Mrs. Shapiro said, I'm not sure Ben knows how to do laundry, so I'll go with the dishes, which he does quite often, and she threw in a little thanks, hun. Matt, you answered, I hate them both, but dishes. Your wife said dishes, and she also threw in, he doesn't know how to do the laundry. Again, being thrown under the bus. True. Michael, you answered dishes. Your wife said neither, but if there was a gun to his head, he would choose dishes. And Drew, finally, you answered, I don't do anything but the dishes, if I had to. And your wife put, again in all caps here, very forceful answer, since he doesn't know how to do laundry, as we learned when I was out of town for several weeks, I'm guessing it's the dishes. Hmm. You caught us. You caught us. We're, uh, we are, we are, normal people and men who are in normal, happy marriages. And we have a sense of humor. And our wives do too. You caught us. You caught us red-handed. You caught us red-handed being in healthy, well-adjusted, normal marriages where we have a sense of humor about things. Caught us. I, I don't know what to say. I mean, we, we and, and I know uh, a sense of humor and a happy marriage are two things that nobody at Media Matters has ever had or will ever have. And so for them, this is like shocking stuff. Um, and, and just so you know, like some of what you saw there, I know I have to kind of break it down for, uh, you freaks. Um, so a lot of what you just saw there, it's called, uh, and, uh, it's, it's, it's called a, a joke. Okay. 
And joke's very interesting where it's a J-O-K-E is how you spell it. And um, so this is this is what's this is what's called. It's like just being kind of humorous and, and laughing about something. Um, do I know how to do the laundry technically? Of course I do. It's like you just you throw the stuff in and you hit the button. It's not that hard. You put the detergent in. Of course we know how to do that. Now, as far as sorting the laundry by color or whatever and all that kind of stuff, or checking the labels on all the dish, all the all the individual you know, items of clothing to see what setting to put it on. I'm not going to do that. Do I know how to do it? Can I read the label physically? And I can, but I'm not going to do that. So I take, it's more of a kamikaze approach. If, If ever my wife makes the mistake of, you know, putting me anywhere near the laundry, I'm going to take a more kamikaze approach of just, you know, it's, it's kamikaze style, throw it all in there and whatever happens, happens. Um, in fact, just recently I did a load of laundry and everything came out pink. And my point was, it's kind of a fun game. You know, you just throw stuff in, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what color it's going to come out. You don't know how, how, what size the things will be when they come out of the laundry. Uh, you never know. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of like a game. Um, my wife doesn't appreciate that approach as much, so I don't do much of the laundry and that's fine. That's how you... You know, this is this is a thing people do in marriages and it's like in normal life, where you it's kind of hyperbole and but it's it's sort of not and you're joking around. There's a grain of truth to it. Uh, again, that's like a it's being a normal human. That's stuff that comes with that. It's that it comes with that territory. But you see just how angry these people are at normalcy. They really hate it, which is why, you know. They always, it's, 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 it's always so easy to predict ahead of time what bits and what things people at Media Matters are going to take and try to blow up and make a big thing about. Because it's always, I always know at the end of every show, I can look back and say, what are the most normal common sense things I said today? Of all the things I said, what were the most normal and common sense things? And it's always going to be those things that they are going to post and say, you can't believe what Matt Walsh said this time. Because they really hate normalcy. And they don't, and they've never experienced it and they don't understand it. And, uh, and that's all fine. Um, though I will, just to, another thing I really, it's very important for me to clarify is that I also hate doing the dishes. So I don't want you to think that I am pro dishes at all. Um, Fortunately, though, now my uh, my kids are old enough where they can really start doing a lot of those chores. So I've been able to offload that as well. It's been great. Let's get to the comment section. Who makes Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage? Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang. Elizabeth Weaver says, the Uvalde shooting story just makes me think of the C.S. Lewis quote, we make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. And, uh, and then to add to it, we screamed about toxic masculinity and are surprised in our hour of greatest need to find no masculinity at all. Absolutely tragic and I'm heartbroken to think of the families. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that applies in general. It applies in this case as well. I mean, you could also add to that and say that, uh, you know, we, we 
in in particular, we were very concerned. When I say we, I mean uh, at least the left, you know, the culture, very concerned about toxic masculinity, specifically in law enforcement, where they it was it was a big concern. And uh, well, there was none of that in Uvalde. So congratulations. Jelena says, not only did the Little Mermaid in the original film want to leave the sea before she met the prince, the original tale is a love story, a tragic one, yes, but a love story. Hans Christian Andersen wrote it as a metaphor for his love life, uh, or rather for his love for a man that he could never be with. So I, that, that's, I, I had never heard that before. I looked it up after, you read, after I read your comment that The Little Mermaid was originally written by Hans Christian Andersen as uh, some kind of you know, gay love affair, or at least a gay infatuation is what led him to write this story. And it's kind of a metaphor for that. And the story was inspired by that. And so I did look it up. For what little I read, I spent about three minutes researching that claim. And from what little I read, um, this sounds sounds like a highly speculative theory uh, based on like someone else's interpretation of various different things and a letter that he wrote and all the rest of it. Um, he certainly never came out and said that's what the story was about to be, was supposed to be about. So I don't know. Um, I, I, I find it kind of dubious. But, but either way, it, it does go to show again that these old classic fairy tales are, they are very layered and uh, there's a lot going on. And, all, and often they have some pretty dark elements. In fact, most of them do. Look, the classic fairy tales, um, it's, uh, you know, there's love and there's romance involved and there's all these different things and there's magic and everything. But it's also, it's, it also can get, can get quite dark. Uh, yet in modern times, we take these classic stories that have been around forever and we add nuance to them, just like uh, the Halle Berry, the, not, which was it? The, the Little Mermaid, the new one, Bailey, Halle Bailey, like she was saying yesterday, we, we, we were talking about, so, well, we want to add nuance. We're making it more nuanced. But every single time you're adding nuance to the story by taking the nuance out of it. But the taking all the depth and all the layers and everything, like taking all that out and uh, and coming up with something that just like this sterilized kind of, even even aesthetically, when you look at these uh, these live action remakes of the old cartoons, and yeah, the themes they they've they've neutered all the themes and all the rest of it. They've made it even more politically correct than it already was. Even though many of these stories, as we said yesterday, were already pretty politically correct because a lot of these cartoons were made in the 90s, which wasn't exactly, I mean, it's not like it is now, but it wasn't exactly, uh, you know, uh, um, I mean, there was the, the PC police were already a problem back then. But um, on top of that, aesthetically, like you, you end up with something that's just, it's not nearly as vibrant or interesting. It's just kind of gray and washed out and ugly and boring and um so that is their version of adding nuance. Their version is to take all take all of it out. Uh, Nick says, "Hey Matt, I lead the College Republicans at Kent State. Yesterday we had a screening of What Is a Woman, and we had a huge turnout. I have now been accused of genocide, and all of our ads for our club around campus were ripped down by the tolerant left. Any tips on continuing influence on campus in the future? Thanks. Well, the one thing I would do is I would." Uh, put up, put the ads back up and do the screening again. When they get mad at you for doing something, that's the rule number one. They get mad at you for doing something, do it again. Keep doing it. Uh, another comment says, Matt, if the aesthetic in your office doesn't fit the giant walrus, then you went for the wrong aesthetic. That is a, 
you know, that is a rebuke that I will that I will take and I will take into consideration. But I still don't want the walrus in my office only because I want the whole family to be able to uh, enjoy it. Uh, Jay Anderson says, I mean, we all knew Matt desperately needs therapy, but after him ragging on Ted Lasso as if it had committed some personal offense proves once and for all this poor man child is broken. Like, I know uh, these are these are these are hard sayings for many of you, and you don't want to hear it about Ted Lasso. I think what happened, here's my theory with Ted Lasso, because because again, when you watch that show, mildly charming for an episode or two, and then it falls off a cliff. And, uh, and it's really quite terrible, but, and not funny at all, you know, any attempt at humor, most of it falls flat and the writing is bad and lazy. And, uh, also by the way, in some of the later episodes, like very woke, it's, it's, it's always interesting to me, the people that, you know, are, are rightfully sensitive to the woke stuff. They don't want to be subjected to that. They don't want woke moralizing. And yet there are, they, 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 they make exceptions in certain cases. And so Ted Lasso, there's a lot of wokeness in that show all over the place. Not even like isolated incidents of it. Um, and, but for some reason that's looked over. I don't know why. So yeah, I get, but, but here's my theory. Why, why, how did that show become so popular? My theory is that it came out in the summer of 2020. And I think people were, you know, a lot of people have been locked in their houses for, for months and people were going stir crazy from the lockdowns. And I think that's what it was. I think it, I think it just came out at that time when people were uh, stir crazy. They were also like starving for human connection. And, uh, and then they come along with this cheesy show about soccer. And for whatever reason, people latched onto that. And so there's some emotional attachment. But if you, can, if you can look past the emotional attachment, you will see that objectively, it's not a good show. Old School says, I hereby nominate Michael Knowles for your next daily cancellation. If I'm not mistaken, he basically likened you to a lib because of your deep-founded belief in aliens. Well, funny you should mention that. That's coming up next. You know, I'm not going to lie to you because uh, I don't have to and I refuse to. I don't like shaving. It's why I have a beard. But what I really don't like are leftist razor companies that hate our values yet feel entitled to our money. It's why... I spite them all by buying Jeremy's razors and Jeremy's beard kit. A year ago, Jeremy's uh, declared war on Woke Incorporated with the launch of its six-bladed Founder Series razor. After taking in feedback from all of you, something Jeremy is uh, much more willing to do than I am, a second razor was soon developed. The new Precision 5 razor is crafted with a hefty tungsten handle, five welded steel blades, and a flip-back trimmer for a smooth, precise shave around beard lines, sideburns, or whatever uh, you got going on with your face. Over 100,000 men have already made the switch to Jeremy's, and it's time you did the same. Stop giving your cash to so-called men's grooming companies who hate men and use your dollars to fund radical left-wing agendas. Let's put woke corporate America out of business. Go to jeremysrazors.com to get your Precision 5 razor and shop the growing line of beard care, skin care, and hair care products today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Well, I want you to know, to start with, that I never wanted it to come to this, uh, but I have been left with no choice. I must today cancel my friend and colleague, Michael Knowles, Of course, I've known for a long time that Michael is not a believer in aliens. I've listened to him repeatedly slander the alien believer community, ABC, and I have shown great and admirable restraint, choosing not to respond in kind, but now he has crossed a line. So for a little bit of background uh, behind the scenes here, yesterday, as I was passing Michael in the hallway on the way to, to film my show after he had just filmed his, he excitedly shouted to me, hey, I talked about aliens today. 
And he was baiting me to watch the segment, and I took the bait. I was expecting it to be ignorant and factually incorrect, and it lived up to those expectations or down to them, but I did not expect the level of vitriol and hate that I encountered. He launched a vicious, defamatory broadside against the entire ABC, even calling me out by name, which means he's attacking the ABC and the SBG, the ABC-SBG. He stopped short of saying that we should be eradicated, but I know he was thinking it. You know, there's been a cold war over the alien issue at the Daily Wire for years now. But now Michael Knowles is firing shots. Uh, Here's the clip. Another story I had to get to today. This is out of UCI, the University of California, Irvine. Terminator zones on distant planets could harbor life, UC Irvine astronomers say. These in-between regions could be prime sites for liquid water. In a new study, University of California Irvine astronomers describe how extraterrestrial life has the potential to exist on distant exoplanets inside a special area called the Terminator Zone, which is a ring on planets that always have one side facing its star and one side that's always in the dark. And the thing is, um, no, they couldn't. The thing is, I'm not even going to read the rest of the article. I'm certainly not going to read the study. Uh, No, the Terminator zones could not harbor life because extraterrestrial aliens aren't real. (laughs) They're not real. And the libs, just they love it. They're so fascinated by it. It's just, it made me think about how many completely ridiculous things the libs believe in. And yet they call us the gullible ones. They call us the fantastical ones. The libs believe in catastrophic global warming. It's going to kill us all in five minutes. The libs believe that boys can secretly be girls and girls can secretly be boys. And the libs believe in ET. It's not real. There is. I know this is controversial on the right. I know my colleague Matt Walsh here is very pro-ET. There is zero evidence that extraterrestrial life exists anywhere. Zero. The the best evidence they can muster is, well, the universe is really big. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. First of all, why are you reading off of an actual piece of paper? This is the year 2023. What are you trying to prove? Do you do show research with the Dewey Decimal System too? I mean, I believe in returning to tradition, but let's be serious here. Second, I don't even know why I'm asking you about show research. It's clear on this topic anyway that you don't believe in research. You claim that there's no good reason to believe in alien life, but then refuse to read anything that might threaten to explode your bigoted, ET-phobic, preconceived notions. That study from UCI, which you printed out and then discarded, literally murdering trees for no reason, says that planets orbiting red dwarf stars could, in fact, have the right conditions to harbor life. Now, this is significant because it vastly expands the number of extrasolar planets that could potentially have life. You're correct that the size of the universe does not itself indicate that there's life elsewhere in the universe. Indeed, if we lived in a vast universe, hundreds of trillions of light years across, and there were no other planets, then we could assume that aliens aren't real, as you say. But in fact, we do live, uh, we do not live in an endless vacuum with only one planet orbiting one solitary star. We live in an endless vacuum with billions of planets orbiting billions of stars. The existence of the planets doesn't prove that the planets are inhabited, obviously. And we know just based on chemical composition and atmospheric conditions that a large portion of them are almost certainly not inhabited. But that still leaves billions of planets where the potential for life 
exists. Each planet is potential, and that potential is repeated billions upon billions of times. You say there's no evidence of ET. That's, that's true in the sense that we haven't seen like an alien skyscraper through a telescope or whatever, but we can calculate the number of potentially habitable planets, and that number goes up all the time. So there's evidence of ET's potential, and that potential is repeated an essentially infinite number of times. It's possible that you could visit every planet in every solar system, in every galaxy, and even after spending trillions of years on that sightseeing tour, still find not one living species anywhere else. That's possible, but it's not the most likely scenario. Okay, you certainly have no rational basis for assuming it, and you definitely have no rational or evidentiary grounds for declaring from the outset that there's nothing to find in the first place. By way of analogy, consider this. We, you know, we now know that there are something like 3.5 trillion fish living in the oceans. 500 years ago, we knew very little about what lived there. People came up with all kinds of wild theories, many of which ended up being incorrect. But th the sheer size of the ocean was evidence in itself that it probably contained billions and trillions of living creatures. Uh, so yes, the fact that the ocean was big was reason enough to speculate that there's probably billions and trillions of, of fish in it. That was an assumption that could be reasonably made. And it would have been irrational and ridiculous for a person 500 years ago to assume that the ocean only contains the number of fish that he can see when he stands on the shore and looks out. But that's what you're doing in essence. You're standing on the shoreline and saying, well, I see a horseshoe crab and a clam. I guess that's all there is. And if everybody was standing on that shoreline with you and nobody had seen any more of the ocean, then we would have to admit that your assumption could prove correct. But even without checking, we would still know that it is not the most plausible theory. Yet you're doing something more absurd here because you're standing billions of miles away and declaring that all of the oceans and all of the land on all of the planets and all of the solar systems and all of the galaxies are all empty. Now, let us examine the charge which you make later in the clip. Uh, that, and, and you make in what we heard there, that I am a lib on this issue. I will concede that whoever is the most, is most the lib when it comes to the question of alien life is least likely to be correct. There is, of course, an inverse correlation between libness and correctness. You say that I'm the lib because, uh, because, you know, libs want to believe that human beings aren't special and, uh, and that can be achieved by postulating the existence of other beings in the universe. But that is not my position. Now, I can't speak for the actual libs who may or may not believe in alien life. But what I can say for myself is that I know human beings are special because we were made by God and we have rational souls. I also know that God has chosen to place the human species inside this unfathomably boundless universe populated by something like 700 quintillion planets. Did he create all these planets and all these galaxies, the vast majority of which we will never see, not even in a telescope, only to keep them all empty? It's possible, I suppose, but he also may have created them in order to fill them with life, which will glorify him in ways that we perhaps will never understand. I would submit that insisting on an empty universe is an attempt to limit God. It is to say that God must operate in ways that we understand and that he cannot have created an, a, other life on other planets because the existence of such life, life raises questions that are uncomfortable for us. This, I would say, is hubris. As for the specialness of human beings, why would humans be less special just because other life exists? 
Is each individual human less special just because there are 8 billion of us? There, there were 400 million people on earth 500 years ago. Today, there are 8 billion. Has our individual stock somehow gone down just because we now find ourselves on a planet far more populated than anyone in the 16th century ever could have imagined? No, not at all. And so if I am not worth any less, no matter how many people live on earth, how would I be worth any less by the addition of life on planets I will never visit or see anyway? Human beings are not commodities whose worth is determined by the law of supply and demand. The universe could be teeming with life, and I believe it very well may be. And that would not undermine our worth or our purpose by one iota. We have our place on this vast cosmic tapestry, even if that tapestry is far more alive and vibrant than you assume. And that assumption, that assumption, if anything, makes you a lib, sir and a scoundrel. And it also makes you today canceled. That'll do it for this portion of the show. As we move over to the members block, uh, you can become a member today and use code Walsh at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed. <laughs>